I don't think there's any one path which is right. It's more about not where you are, but how you spend that time. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur, founder, and CEO, Matt Mullenweg, who is best known for our founded Automatic, which is behind brands WordPress.com, WooCommerce, Jetpack, SimpleNote, and more, reaching more than a billion people a month. In this week's episode, Matt talks about how he got into technology, what his high school and college days were like, being young and in a position in a big company, to leaving and risking it all to become a founder, what he does to meet great people to work with or invest in, and the great story of how he misplaced a half a million dollar check. Does that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Matt, for joining on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'd like to get started by asking you, how did you get started in technology? I know you started WordPress when you were 19 years old. How did you get started in tech? The very first stuff, I know you're from Houston too. So I grew up in Houston and first websites I made were actually for musicians. So I studied at a performing arts high school and played saxophone. And the very first websites, you know, lessons were kind of expensive. They were like $40, $50 an hour. So I would exchange either building a computer, like a physical desktop computer, or building a website in exchange for lessons for like local musicians around town. And I know you went to HSPVA in Houston. What were your teenage years like and what made you distinct as a teenager? I always had a big love for technology. I think because my dad was, you know, kind of an engineer tech guy for oil companies. Nothing fancy, but just like normal kind of technology jobs, but early on. Yeah, I don't know what else. So my friends would probably say I was like, I definitely ran the computer club and the Palm Pilot Club and stuff like that. But yeah, going to art school, I also really enjoyed kind of the non, the more human side of things, the more liberal arts side of things. And you went to college for a little bit, is that right? Yeah, just about two years. Two years. And what made you leave school? You know, I think two things. One, the college I went to, which was University of Houston, wasn't like the strongest, especially in terms of like on-campus culture. I don't remember the exact number, but the vast majority of attendees there, like 90%, don't actually live on the campus. So it was mostly a commuter college, and I didn't live on the campus either. So there wasn't like a really strong like social aspect keeping me there. And, you know, WordPress had already started at that point. So I was given an opportunity to move to San Francisco and work for a public company called CNET, now CBS Interactive. But I was like, hmm, they're going to pay me to move to the coolest city in the world where there's lots of people passionate about what I'm passionate about. So I took the opportunity. It was kind of the summer after my sophomore year. And how long were you at CNET? Just about a year, actually. It was one of those things where they were starting to, WordPress had already started and they were starting to use it a bit, but there was still a lot of pushback against blogs, actually. So early on in the days of blogging, particularly major media organizations, which CNET was a little bit more traditional, saw blogs as like a more amateur thing or not as valid. So even though they were using WordPress to publish some of these sites, the idea of enabling millions and millions of bloggers to have their own voice, which was my sort of passion, I didn't resonate as much with the company. So that's, I stayed probably like three three or four months extra to finish up some projects because they had, I want to show some loyalty to them because they had helped me move away from Houston. But after the, I wrapped up some of those projects, I left to start Automatic, which is the company behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, and other services for WordPress. And, and what was that like? How old were you? 20. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, yeah, 20 when Automatic started. Either 20 or maybe just turned 21. And how many, was it just you at the time or were there a few other people that you started Automatic with? What I was able to do was I actually started the company 
I hired the first employees before I left CNET. So the first, I think two employees, I just paid out of my CNET salary and like credit card debt. <laughs> that was also partially because I was finishing up the kind of projects that I wanted to finish up at CNET. So they were supportive of everything. But yeah, that was kind of the very beginning, but I was technically a sole founder. And was it pretty scary when you left your job that you were getting a salary at for no salary? Because it was bootstrapped, we found some early revenue in different partnerships and sort of our anti-spam product and things like that. So Automatic definitely made revenue almost from you know, the first month of the business. And so that definitely removes some of the fear. I would say most of my fear was just around having never done it before. So it was one of these things where like, I don't actually know what I'm doing. So I read a ton of books, <laughs> tried to meet with a ton of people, and then eventually found a business partner, Tony Schneider, who joined and became CEO the following year, uh, who was really like super fantastic. And before you found Tony, what were some of the biggest things you learned in that first year where if you could go back in time um, to you know day zero at WordPress, what would be some of the things you would do differently? You know, some of it was actually prior to founding the company. So I had actually sort of pre-announced the formation of the company even when nothing existed. And that was a little bit of a mess. So that was definitely a pre-Tony mistake. What else did I learn? Tony joined pretty early on. So I had met him already, but he was at, he had sold a company to Yahoo. So he was finishing up that. So he was a great counsel from early on. Like I would say one of the things was that when you get a legal bill, I thought a legal bill was like a, like an electricity bill. Like if you don't pay it, you, I don't know, go to jail or something. But it turns out they're totally negotiable. So I was getting all these like really huge legal bills and just paying them. And Tony came in. He's like, no, you don't have to like that. That's like the starting point. You can negotiate that down. And so that was, I say, one very key thing that might be useful for some other entrepreneurs who are listening. What are some of the other things you've learned from Tony? Oh, man, so much. So Tony was CEO for about eight years. And it was really like a master class, you know, music you often study under people who have done it before. And Tony had been part of startups for, you know, like 20 years. So he had a ton of experience. Uh, he's Swiss, Swiss German, and then moved to America when he went to college. And so the sort of, you know, the joke is like Switzerland is a neutral country. Like he was very measured in the way he approached things, which I feel like was a good match because uh, automatic from very early on was very low drama, not a lot of scandals or things. We'd like, we'd talk a ton. And then kind of figure out the best way forward. And through that kind of course of like going back and forth would kind of discern the best path. And I think something I still learned from him. So Tony's actually still at the company. He runs a smaller team now. It's just he can approach things and like really connect with people in a way that makes everyone feel really included. And I think it's, you know, one of his superpowers. What would you say your superpower is? Probably hiring and just sort of like the non-hiring parts of hiring, which are also like finding great people to work with. I've been very lucky or good at finding great partners both on the investment side and early folks I worked with like Tony who I'm still able to work with now 12, 13 years later since I met him. And to me, that's been really special because coming into San Francisco from Houston, I felt very much like an outsider. Like everyone already knew each other and they all like it worked together at previous companies or all went to Stanford together or something like that. And so being able to develop these long uh, working relationships with folks that now have spanned over a decade has been really, really special to me. What would be your advice to someone um, who is moving from another city into San Francisco right now? What would be your recommendation for those types of people to find you know, great people to work with? You know, I think a lot of it was just I kind of tried to help as many people as possible. And for me at the time, that was partially doing like a lot of WordPress tech support. <laughs> like 
that would help a lot of people with you know setting up their sites or like I used to host upgrade parties at my apartment so or at least the new version everyone could come over to my house and I would upgrade their site for them <laughs> so like just stuff like that I felt like kind of put some good karma out there and allow me to meet some really interesting people the other thing was I would just go to any event I was interested in so whether it was like a micro formats or web standards events or like a you know whatever it was that was around at the time like a blogger event I would you know, just kind of look at meetup and the different calendars and uh, my SQL events like I would go to all sorts of random stuff and um, it's funny now sometimes I'll run into the people who I met there much 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 later who are now running you know multi-hundred million dollar companies but we met because we had a booth next to each other at the MySQL open source conference in like 2005 wow so kind of what I see what I was intimidated by when I first moved there is now something that works to my advantage is that you know, some folks I've been able to know over long periods of time but it's really just because I would kind of go out there and, and show up and just meet people be friendly and kind of treat everyone well without kind of thinking what they could help me with or give me but just trying to like to know them as a person and help them out if I was able to. And what about now? How are you meeting great people either to invest in or to work with? Well, I've paused new investments because I've taken back over some core WordPress stuff. So some of the open source side. So to make time for that, I paused new investments. But I feel like I, I meet good people now. You know, I don't know. It can be anywhere. <laughs> I think it's really just about a state of mind. If you're open-minded, you can meet great people on airplanes. You can meet great people at the subway. I meet a lot of folks through WordPress, so at WordPress events or WordCamps around the world. And I guess there are events I go through, yeah. I still go to events, sometimes ones that are outside of my comfort zone. Like, it's probably four or five years ago, but I went to TED Med, which was like the medical version of TED, focused on health sciences. Not because I work in health science or anything like that, but just because I was like curious about it. Like, what is kind of the edge of technology and design for things that affect our bodies? So sometimes going to things outside of your comfort zone can be uh, really helpful there. This is a struggle for me because I'm naturally very much an introvert. But, you know, I usually afterwards appreciate going out, even if kind of getting myself out the door is sometimes difficult. What are some interests that you have outside of technology? I'm still really passionate about music, and I love uh, jazz in particular. I've become pretty into food. <laughs> Less on the cooking side and more on the eating side, but because I travel a lot, I'm finding kind of like a good local restaurant or like a top chef in the area is always like a kind of a thing you can do no matter where you are. And uh, finally, you know, I love geeking out on new technology, whether it's blockchain stuff. I just joined a board of a company called uh, GitLab, which makes, you know, it's kind of like an open source GitHub and source control, but also combining a ton of developer tools. So sometimes for fun, I'll just, even though my job day to day is more on the managerial side and like, you know, being more of the CEO and everything, I still like at heart love geeking out with things. And it could be, you know, development tools. It could be something simple as like, you know, redoing the network at home so that my Wi-Fi is faster. Hmm. And what's something that you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? You know, one thing that's on my list for this year has nothing to do with technology, but a friend, uh, Kevin Rose, actually challenged me to do the Wim Hof 10-week program, which is like, he's the Iceman guy. He can like, he climbed like, Everest in his bare feet. Like, he's some crazy guy. But he has this kind of breathing 10-week program where you like take ice baths and do this type of breathing. And like, I haven't done it, <laughs> but I would like to. And what would you say the most embarrassing moment uh, starting automatic? Probably one of the most embarrassing moments was the first check we got that was from this guy named Phil Black, who's now one of the head guys at True Ventures. But at the time, it was before True existed. So he wrote this check. And where the other investors in our first round wired the money, he actually wrote like a physical check. 
I was kind of expecting, it was like four or $500,000. Like I was expecting it to be like a publisher's clearinghouse check, like really large, you know, that you could carry and into the bank, like you were carrying like a giant sign. But it was just like a small, normal sized, like check, like the one you would write at the grocery store or something. And I misplaced this check. <laughs> And I wasn't sure what to do about that because it was like, luckily the other investors had wired money, so we weren't short for money. But it was like, there was this pretty large chunk, like a third of the round that I didn't know where it was. <laughs> so obviously I couldn't deposit it. I was like, I wasn't sure if I could tell him because then he would think I was really irresponsible or had just lost his money or something like that. But so I just didn't do anything for like three or four months, maybe longer actually. But I was on a um, a flight back to Houston for Thanksgiving and I opened up a kind of a paper book. I think it was like a biography or something I had in my backpack. And when I opened it up, I ended up, it turns out I had used that paper check as a bookmark. <laughs> So like on the plane, the like the check fell out onto the little you know tray table, and I was like, oh, "This is amazing!" <laughs> and the first thing I did when I landed was go to a bank and deposit it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And when did you tell Phil? I th- I think I told him probably a couple of years later. <laughs> He tells the story now too, though. It's pretty funny. What about, uh, do you have any tactics for coping with setback negative experiences? I imagine, you know, WordPress has been through its ups and downs. So what would be your advice there? Something I usually find helpful is just reading about how other companies have had a lot of trouble. You know, whether it's like Elon Musk going, almost going bankrupt or how badly Amazon was panned afterwards or like all the, you know, all the companies that we now think of as like kind of golden and unsaleable actually went through some really, really tough times and almost went out of business at various points in their history. And the press in particular, tech press is kind of only tells like the good side of the story usually, or they tell like the bad side as the company's going out of business, <laughs> you know, so that doesn't really help you a lot. But if you dig in, whether it's a biography or like a deep history on, on a company, you can usually see that even the ones you think of as like totally golden, having a straight up into the right rise, um, have often gone through some really tough times or almost gone out of business or not existed, if not for like a very lucky thing along the way. So knowing that it's not just you that's going through the tough time is really helpful. What were some of those tough times at WordPress? Oh, we've just gone up into the right. It's been no tough times. Okay. <laughs> so... You know, there's been any numbers throughout the years. And I, I think something else that helps now is that, you know, WordPress is, was it 14 years old? I've seen a couple of the cycles, meaning I've seen like points when, you know, the press and everyone else, investors, et cetera, were like, you could do no wrong. Everything was interpreted in the most positive way. And then a couple of times when like everyone's predicting you're going to go out of business because of, you know, blogger and posturous and Tumblr and, you know, whatever it is that's hot at the moment. A few years ago, it was medium. Like, you know, all these things, sometimes they come and sometimes they go. So if you can survive the cycles, it also gives you a lot more confidence in the future ones to really follow your principles versus like being too worried and your customers, following your principles and your customers versus about being too worried about whatever is kind of the meme of the moment. And how do you make hard decisions? Do you have any tactics around that? Yeah. So, I mean, probably the number one thing is just talking to people about it. I know that sounds like the most obvious dumb thing, but sometimes I'll realize that I've been agonizing over something for like a few days or a week. And I'm like, I should just tell a friend about it, whether it's a friend or a colleague or whoever it is. And sometimes in like 10 minutes of talking about it, you overcome something that you've been struggling with for, you know, weeks. 
And the second thing, which I think is super, super useful, and I believe everyone should do, is keeping a decision journal. So there's actually a great blog post about this on Farnham Street. So if you Google, like, just Google decision journal, they're actually one of the top couple hits. But they have a little template for it, which is really good. So the idea of a decision journal is, like, write down, when you come to a decision, write down about it. Write down what you expect the effects to be and sort of your context and thinking for it. And then this gives you like kind of an audit log of all your previous decisions. And you can look at it later and see how you've done without sort of succumbing to the normal cognitive biases that typically affect our retrospective analysis of the decisions we've made. I like that. So do you keep a a decision journal? I do. Yeah. How often are you writing in it? I only started this year. So I've really only been doing kind of major, major decisions and a couple dozen entries. What would be an example of one of the more recent major decisions that you could share? Could be a high-level hire, so like a big hire that you're making, and maybe you're deciding between a few good candidates. It could be a direction for a business or whether to do a partnership or not. I know I'm speaking a little bit in the abstract, but because they're all recent, I can't like speak exactly to what they are. But these are kind of classes of things that I think would be good to put in decision journal. Got it. And do you have any stories about controversy, either with WordPress first-hand or second-hand? I mean, yeah, we're going through some controversy right now. We're working on a new editor experience, basically the place where people can write and create posts and pages for WordPress. And we're taking a pretty radically different approach, like kind of breaking out the structure instead of having like one big box that you write into, kind of break it into blocks. So there might be a text block, a map block, a contact form block, a shopping block, whatever. And, you know, this because this changes like the editing experience of WordPress so much, it's going to, well, even if we provide backwards compatibility, like to work really well in this new interface some of the tens of thousands of plugins that are out there for wordpress or people who have built wordpress sites custom in the past will need to update it to like work in this new interface or just shine in this new interface so i mean that's been hugely hugely controversial because a lot of people i think are really scared of that investment in work and time and development and are really advocating for us not to change it at all <laughs> so there's some very heated discussions around the wordpress world now it's called uh the new project is called gutenberg so if you if you search around for Gutenberg stuff, you'll see some posts saying it's wonderful, and you see some posts saying like it's going to cause WordPress to you know essentially lose all its market share. How do you think entrepreneurs should deal with controversy? Do you think should shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it comes up? I'm a believer in engaging with things. I will counter that by saying that sometimes it's good to just lay low <laughs> and let things pass. But with with this in particular, you know, people posting about it or some of the fears are rooted in some uncertainty. So what we try to do is read every single criticism, every single bad review, everything, and extract out what's really useful from that. So look at what might be behind what people are saying and try to understand like what they mean and what they really need, which isn't always what they say. So by diving in there, both it makes people feel heard, understood. And give us a chance to kind of address the issues or counter them, you know, because some of the things people are saying are just wrong. So usually if there's a blog post about it, we'll come in in the comments and say, you know, thank you for your feedback first and foremost. Because one of people are writing long posts about it, it means they care. So that's kind of a blessing that people care in the first place. But then two, trying to really engage them on the issues and the points and make sure that we understand their point of view. But also that they understand like what the actual goals and vision and like timeline and roadmap of Gutenberg is. Got it. And what's something controversial today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? Anything involving stem cells, the application of machine learning to like non, non-sort of data tasks, self-driving cars are really controversial. I think that'll be pretty commonplace in the future. In sort of the world I live in today, I think it's a little controversial to imagine 
this is kind of funny to say actually now that I'm saying it, but like that you don't necessarily need a developer to make a website. And it's funny because it was kind of the founding premise of WordPress was to democratize publishing and make it accessible to a lot of fake people. But there's also, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that make their living building WordPress websites. And so it can sometimes be challenging or scary if we improve the usability of WordPress from release to release to the point of view, it's a point where you might not need a developer to build a pretty good looking site. But although that is a little bit controversial now, I just can't imagine anything that's going to reverse that flow. Do you think uh, distributed workforce, do you think more companies will have that in the future? Oh, you know what? That's a really good one. <laughs> yeah, I totally forgot about it because I live it every day. But like distributed work is very controversial now. And in fact, some companies like Yahoo or IBM are pulling back to distributed workforce. And I think it's 100% the future work where, you know, talent will be all over the world and people will be able to coordinate really well virtually. And so there's no reason to geographically limit yourself to just people who are going to be able to live or commute to you know, one fixed point or a couple of fixed points, which are offices. And you should just really try to find the best people in the world. I truly believe that distributed work is the future. Do you think some of those companies that are you know, Yahoo and IBM, do you think they should be distributed right now? Well, I mean, those aren't exactly companies that are doing super well. So maybe their core issue is attracting the best people in the world. For a startup, what would be your advice to them uh, setting up a distributed workforce? Any tools or tactics to making that efficient? Yeah, I mean, if you're starting something new, I, I would say the key is to do it from the beginning. So I think it's important for teams to get together sometimes. So especially if you're small, like when we were five or 10 people, we used to get together twice a year, but then really try to be as efficient as possible when you're not together. And as you scale up the company, make sure that you're not using those in-person times as a crutch, but you're really kind of investing in the communication skills for being distributed and being apart. So you can be just as effective then, if not more effective than you are the week or two of the year when you happen to be together. What are some ineffective things you see first-time founders do? I mean, probably the number one thing I see first-time founders doing wrong is being a little too precious about the idea. I mean, either to the point where they don't want to tell you or where like the kind of idea is worshipped as like a, a sacred thing that is the heart of creation. And if you get down to it, like for every company that you can think of or admire, the idea was usually the less, least interesting thing. And in fact, when they started, there were probably... Either big companies doing the same thing or lots of other startups doing that exact same idea. So it really comes down to iteration and execution in terms of what I see being successful in the long run. I also tend to see like often the ideas that people hide aren't necessarily really strong ones. And the ideas that you tell everyone and they think it's not worth it are sometimes like the ones that are really, really, really good. So also knowing that it's okay to tell your idea and it's also okay if people besides you think it's a terrible idea. And what would be your advice to young people trying to figure out what they want to do? They may not have that idea yet. You know, just to try lots of stuff. And that's the number one thing. It's impossible to sit down with a notepad and figure out exactly what you're going to really enjoy doing or be passionate about. You kind of have to try a bunch of things that don't work out and then kind of know enough to follow the one that really resonates with you. How many things did you try before WordPress? Oh, a ton. Like I built lots and lots of websites. Actually... WordPress originally wasn't going to have any content management features. I was going to make a separate system called like Content Press or something. So WordPress would just be for blogging and be a separate system for content management. So I tried lots and lots and lots of stuff. And, you know, still to this day, try things. And I think that's really key to figuring out what's going to work and what's going to, what you're going to enjoy and be excited about. And growing up or now as an adult, did you do things that your family thought was crazy? 
Well, dropping out of school was definitely challenging to my family, and I definitely felt like I was squandering a little bit of an opportunity. My dad actually also went to U of H, but he went there, like, and he also worked a job at a factory and was married to my mom and had a kid. <laughs> so, like, he worked way, way, way harder. And when I went to U of H, I had a full scholarship and, you know, made money from websites and stuff. So it wasn't like a huge, huge struggle. So dropping out, I, I was wondering, like, hmm, I'm working so much less than my dad did for the same opportunity and I'm walking away from it. But I was walking away for it. One of the things that sort of reassured my mom in particular a lot. She wanted me to go work for Google, who I'd also spoken to at the time because they had free food and everything. But uh, CNET was better because they allowed me to retain the intellectual property rights. So I was going to go to CNET. She was like, oh, one, it being a public company and two, it having healthcare was a really, really big deal to her. So about a year later, when I was like, oh, I'm leaving and I'm not going to have healthcare anymore and stuff like that it was definitely a bit of a challenge. If there was one thing you could pinpoint that has contributed to your success more than anything, what would that be and why? I'm not sure if I could pick just one thing. Um, I definitely think it's like, it's not just one thing, but it's a system. So it's working with great people, but it's also giving them autonomy. It's being persistent, but also, you know, being self-aware and knowing when you're heading down the wrong path. So usually for anything that you can pick, there is a important opposite, <laughs> which you have to keep in mind. And so it's not necessarily the one thing, but it's how you navigate between two things that seem mutually exclusive that allow you to find a path, which is you know, the most optimal. And how do you manage your, your life and time? Do you have any specific morning or afternoon or evening routines? Yeah, definitely. I would say the things that have been really, really effective for me in the mornings in particular is doing at least a little bit of exercise, even if it's like the seven-minute workout and meditation. If I can do those two things and read in the morning, I find my entire day is like really set up. The other sort of meta skill is just reading a ton. It can be fiction. It can be nonfiction. Anything that's not like the news or Twitter, <laughs> longer things and books in particular, you know, is definitely one of those things that I find. It's one of those universals. Almost everyone you find who's successful reads or listens to audiobooks or just you know, consumes a lot of kind of that longer information on a regular basis. Which couple of books or podcasts do you think ambitious young people should absolutely read or listen to right now? Now, I'll name three blogs that are really, really excellent because they're long-form blogs. One is called Farnham Street. It's F-A-R-N-H-A-M Street. The second is called Brain Pickings by Maria Popova. And the Krista Tippett on Being, which is both a blog and a podcast. So those three, you know, Krista Tippett's a little bit more on the spiritual side. Uh, Marie Popova is kind of like on the classics. And then uh, Farnham Street is more like kind of Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Tim Ferriss, like kind of newer, you know, figuring out the ways of life that are, you know, what are the things that people have figured out before? Those are really, really excellent ones. And they refer to a ton of books, including books like Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger, who's the partner of Warren Buffett. There's some really good ones. I've also enjoyed uh, Tim Ferriss' last two books. So Tribe of Mentors is the latest, and the other one is called Tools of Titan. Both Tools and Titans and Tribe of Mentors contain so much good advice and also so many good references. Like off almost any one of the interviews or any of Tim's podcasts, you can usually like uh, go down a rabbit hole of like things to learn about and, uh, and investigate. So uh, he does a pretty good job of showing some of the commonalities between them. You can also just pick up your own patterns in the interviews or the sort of sections that you resonate with most. And I thought Tools of Titans was really good, not just because I'm in it, but you know, the other things were good. And I am reading through Tribe of Mentors right now, and it's, it's also super excellent. Nice. Very cool. I'll have to check that one out. And what would you say your, your biggest challenges are right now? 
You know, right now, I think our big challenges are that we're trying to figure out marketing for the first time. So WordPress has always grown through word of mouth. And I think that we're now starting to look at doing more advertising online, offline, TV, billboards, radio, all sorts of stuff that is uh, not native to me. It's not something that I'm personally uh, wake up every morning thinking about or really passionate about, but it's important for as we scale the business. And the other thing is just, you know, building a great team, particularly at the executive level. Automatic has been a pretty flat organization historically. And I think that we could probably do to hire some more senior people or elevate some of our current people into more senior roles than they currently are in. So something that's on my mind a lot right now. We're about, I think, 620 or 630 people. So it's really getting kind of big now. Wow. And is there anything that you're trying to learn right now? Are there any, you know, whether that's on the web or going to different events? Definitely meditation is something that I'm working on a lot and trying to learn more. I'm also trying to learn French. <laughs> I almost hesitate to say it because I'm doing such a bad job. But this year, I started doing like some uh, some Duolingo and some Memrise, M-E-M-R-I-S-E, like sort of programs. I've never really been able to learn a foreign language before, even growing up in Houston, which is super multicultural. So it's just been an interesting way to stretch my brain. And I was able to spend you know six or seven weeks in Paris this summer. And it was nice. It was actually pretty cool to be able to like get some rudimentary phrases out. But I'm still like really fearful of it. And I don't know how to describe it. Like, obviously, many parts of life, like, I lead large groups or talk in front of thousands of people. But I just be, like, at a restaurant talking to a waiter, like, freeze up, unable to, like, break out my rudimentary French. So I'm hoping with, like, uh, some continued study there, I'll be able to pass those mental blocks. Do you have a tutor or are you doing it all on your own? Yeah, I've just been doing all online stuff so far, so all apps. But it's probably a good idea is to, like, work more with a person on a regular basis. Speaking a little bit of tutoring, do you think it's 100% necessary to, to go to college? I think it depends on what you get out of it. Like some people definitely waste waste their time there or squander it. I also you know, have many, many friends. The, the dropout thing that I did is a little bit of a cliche, <laughs> but lots of people drop out and do fine. I have lots of friends who stayed in all four years or got master's or PhDs that are doing really awesome companies or entrepreneurial things. So I don't think there's any one path which is right. It's more about not where you are, but how you spend that time. I would definitely say that don't just drop out for the sake of it. But if there's not something that you feel like you have to have to do, take advantage of that ability, the incredible luxury, which is just devote yourself to learning. Because if you speak to anyone in their 30s or 40s or older or anyone running a company, they will all tell you that the thing that they wish they could just you know do the most is that kind of uninterrupted time devoted to learning. And what excites you most today? Any exciting ideas? Really, really excited right now by the sort of Cambrian explosion of the open web. So we had kind of a sort of a Facebook Twitter phase where people really thought that everything was going to be on these closed social networks and Google made Google Plus and there was all this sort of stuff that was happening. And we've kind of started to swing around like at just beginning where people find they spend most of their time online. I mean, maybe they're inside the Facebook app, but maybe they're looking at links, you know, things on the web. And there's really cool stuff going on around like progressive web apps and other technologies that uh, Google is pioneering, but lots of people are contributing to that kind of meld the best of both worlds between kind of what you would think of as the web and, and open web standards and the best that native apps can do. So these sorts of things, I think we can create some really great user experiences around them. And there's still like, even though it seems like these companies are huge and all the opportunities have passed, there's still billions of people that don't have a smartphone yet. And billions of people who have a smartphone that are sort of graduating to be more online and publish more. And even hundreds of millions of small businesses that still don't have a website. So there's just, there's a ton of, ton of opportunities. And I'm kind of surprised by that because I a little bit expected, but by now, like all the fruit would be picked from the tree. But it really feels like we're at the beginning of like a hundred year cycle for 
how technology is going to transform how we interact with each other in the world. Very cool. And I, I want to talk a little bit about how you interview people. You have an interesting way of doing it. Can you share what that is and, and why you do it differently than you know what's common? Yeah, there's a bit about it. So to know all about, I think it's not just an interview, but it's like a whole tri- hiring process. And I actually have an article, there's an article on HBR, if you Google HBR, which stands for Harvard Business Review, and my name, you'll find it. And what we try to do, I'd say what's distinct and really important in the magic sauce of what we do is that we do a trial project with everyone, whether it's like an incoming C-level position, like a CFO or CMO, or whether it's, you know, someone doing support or, you know, managing the office as we find like some way to represent replicate the real work that they're going to do and you know just do a short you know couple day or couple week project with them where they're working alongside the people that we're working with because there's really no approximation that I found through interviewing or resumes or anything that um that shows what it's actually like to work in the trenches alongside someone got it I read that you you conduct all of your interviews over text chat is that right yeah I mean unless you know I do a few that might be on phone or in person but it's only if it's going to be someone whose job involves <laughs> like doing things in person because then obviously you want to see if they're good at that like if they're going to be like pitching big enterprises on doing multi-million dollar installations of WordPress like probably should meet them and see if they're good at that but for say 98% of positions in automatic um, we really interact primarily over uh, text and chat so to evaluate them most fairly and see how they'll do within the company text is actually a really good meeting for that it also takes some of the pressure off because if someone wants to google something or take five or ten minutes to compose an answer or something or edit like you can do that where if we were in person and I asked a question and they waited five minutes to answer that would be a little awkward <laughs> Be. It would be. So I have a couple more questions. I know we're running a little bit over time. What what motivates you? At this point, I really get motivated by sort of the joy of creating you know, things that work well with good people. So, you know, that there's really a camaraderie to working alongside folks who care about the same things that you do and who are really good at the job and bring that sort of dedication and passion to whatever it is you're working on. And then impact on the world uh, just as a way to see whether what you're doing is really working or not. So um, to me, that's really valuable and I find it very, very motivating. And we spoke a little bit earlier about Tim Ferriss' new book, Tribe of Mentors. Who, who would be in your close tribe? Sorry, from Tony. Yeah, so I have a lot of Tonys in my life. There's Tony Schneider, Tony Conrad, and Tony Shea are definitely three people who have been huge influences on me. Uh, I thought I saw you recently at a Tony Shea thing, so that's where yeah, I asked about that. We did see each other. Uh, you know, I definitely, you know, I get a lot of inspiration from people I've never met, like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Um, I'm reading the Ray Dalio book right now, Principles, which I find really, really good. Laszlo Bach at Google. I mean, these are all people I've never met. Often through their books or their writings or their talks, I can learn a lot from. And then the people in my life, you know, I try to find something really inspiring about everyone. You know, I get inspired by my mom, by my late father. One of my good friends is, is Omalik, who's like a favorite tech journalist. And one of my other best friends is this guy, Rene Arnalis in Houston, who's a firefighter. And like, if you really spend time with people and try to understand them, you can often find something you can learn or be inspired by from just about anyone and certainly anyone that you uh, sort of invest in having as part of your life. I'm really curious to play a quick game, maybe saying one thing you've learned most from or been inspired by um, with some of these people. So like from the firefighter, for example, what have you what have you learned most from him? Oh, I can't pick one thing. He's a really amazing guy. One thing, I'll pick two things. So one, on the personal side, he's just a, a guy of such incredible integrity. And the way uh, he interacts with his wife and his family, I just find super inspiring. And uh, he really like is very emotionally aware and really invested in it. 
And it's kind of cool to know because, it, you know, I met him, uh, we both play saxophone. So I met him like one of the first days of high school. We're both like really immature. And he's such like a, a great father and great husband now. So I find that really inspiring. And then from his work, like how firefighters do triage when they either approach a scene like an emergency medical response or how it works when they uh, get to a fire. So we're like the first truck that arrived does point and then there's like a hierarchy and there's like incredible training and there's a way when like a higher ranking person come in later and there's like a, a pass off between who's like the field commander and then the later person. So there's a ton of protocols there that I think actually work really well for any sort of emergency management, even if it's like the site going down or whether it's like a literal fire, like what they deal with. What about uh, Tony Sheck? What have you learned most from him? Oh, Tony's a really cool guy. One of the things that Zappo sells shoes, but really what Tony is passionate about is like finding how people work together and whether that was sort of all the stuff he talks about in his book, Delivering Happiness for the early days of, of Zappos or like the experiments they're doing with Holacracy. And they really evolved at the point where it's something different than Holacracy now, but like he's just kind of an endless experimenter. And it's something I really admire of like Tony Shea or like someone like a Steve Jurbertson is that they're just like endlessly curious and they're always learning and trying to like look at if there's a different way to think about things and trying a lot of stuff out being comfortable with a lot of that stuff not working. So when you see a, like a criticism of the downtown project or Zappos or Tony Shea, like it's usually because stuff didn't work. But that's part of the genius of it is that a lot of it's not going to work, but that's where you often learn the most. What about uh, Tony Conrad? Uh, Tony Conrad, I think, is one of these guys who just has like off the charts emotional intelligence. So where he's really good at like understanding people and thinking about like the context for whatever it is they're doing. So like what motivates people? What do they want out of life or out of their work or out of the deal, or out of a relationship or anything? And not like it's tr extrinsically, like in a transactional way, but like maybe what kind of motivates their core or what was part of their upbringing or the thing that, that is really key to them, kind of like you asked what motivated me earlier. Like he can often figure that out about someone after meeting them just for a few minutes and then kind of use that understanding to use that context to better understand them. And I've always been really impressed with that. I know earlier we spoke about Tony Schneider and some of the early things you learned from him. What about some of the more recent? I think I've already spoken about some of the biggest ones, but like I think something that Tony demonstrates really daily that I take inspiration from is just like a, a really no ego approach to really everything. <laughs> you know, he's got a great family, great kids, a, a long relationship with his wife. And like those are all inspiring. But like also in business, He's a super, super, super smart guy who's very, very accomplished, has every reason to be very egotistical, <laughs> but he still approaches everything with a very open mind. And especially when I was younger, but still to this day, like sometimes I'll be very certain that I'm correct. <laughs> and it always inspires me that Tony's both patient with me when I feel that way, but then also... Uh, even when he's right, like listens to all sides of an argument or or an idea, and uh, and really considers it. Like he really listens. It's not just like a, he's not just waiting for his turn to speak. He's like really thinking about everything you say, and uh, he approaches. That's probably one of the reasons he has successful personal relationships and everything like that. So yeah, that's something that even just the last time I hung out with Tony, I thought about. Very cool. That's awesome. And my last question is: I'm curious, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were young, you went to HSPVA. Do you expect to be on this path or when you were in elementary school or middle school or high school, was there something different? <laughs> I would say like kind of like elementary through high school, I really wanted to be a musician. And then at some point, kind of late high school, early college, I wanted to be an economist. And uh, luckily, I did not go down that path. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time 
It was good to chat, and I hope you're doing well in general. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Matt Mullenweg. Thank you once again, Matt, for coming on the show. It was really helpful to hear about your insights on starting a company, how to network and meet great people, and it was really funny listening to how you lost that half a million dollar check. You can also find all of these links in the description. You can follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter, at Corey. Suggest what guests should come on next week. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday, so stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on Off Record.